The removal of Docker Shim in Kubernetes version 1.22 sounded off some alarms within the Kubernetes community. Does this mean that Docker in Kubernetes is dead? What are the implications of this removal? In this episode of Cocktails, we shed light on Docker Shim's deprecation and also delve into the GitOps hype. We talk about its relationship to infrastructure as code, some of the current GitOps trends, how GitOps is moving towards a more cloud-agnostic future, and explore some of the major players within the infrastructure as code space. Welcome to Coding Over Cocktails, a podcast by Toro Cloud. Here we talk about digital transformation, application integration, low-code application development, data management, and business process automation. Catch some expert insights as we sit down with industry leaders who share tips on how enterprises can take on the challenge of digital transformation. Take a seat, join us for a round. Here are your hosts, Kevin Montalbo and Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. All right, let's get this podcast started. Joining us all the way from Australia is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Hi, David. G'day, Kevin. And our guest for today is a principal DevOps architect at CodeFresh, a member of the Google Developer Experts and Docker Captains groups, and a published author. His big passions include DevOps, containers, Kubernetes, microservices, CICD, and test-driven development. He's a sought-after speaker at community gatherings and conferences, but those aren't really happening right now, so he's very active in his podcast titled DevOps Paradox at devopsparadox.com and is actively blogging at technologyconversations.com. He has also co-authored the books DevOps Toolkit Series and Test-Driven Java Development. Joining us for a round of cocktails is Victor Farsik. Hey, Victor. How are you? Always good. It's permanent. <laughs> doesn't change. It doesn't change, right? Yeah. All right. So we'll jump right into the questions now, Victor. Um, so Kubernetes has just announced that it will no longer be supporting Docker Shim from version 1.22, which is due out later this year. So what does that mean for the Docker containers running on Kubernetes? It really depends on how somebody implemented containers. If people implemented containers as they were supposed to be implemented, meaning that, hey, there is a container running my stuff and uh, whatever whatever is in those containers is 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 there and not somewhere else then nothing happens. For the vast majority of people, uh, if I would change now their container runtime from being Docker to container D or something like that, they would not even notice the difference. Now, there are cases where people were doing some, I would call it, let's say, silly stuff, where they would mount some sockets from their containers to Docker and things like that. Then those people would have problems. Uh, but uh, if you were not doing those things like that, like privilege mode, sockets, and so on and so forth, then it's simply transparent. And that's how it, I believe it's supposed to be, because this, if you look at, for example, cloud uh, vendors with their managed Kubernetes services, in many cases, you don't even know anymore what is a Docker runtime. If right now you spin up, uh, let's say, GKE cluster, cl- uh, Kubernetes cluster in Google, and you really do not go deep into documentation. You have no idea what's what's a container runtime there. So, Victor, just to cl- just to clarify, there, what you're saying is Docker Shim is actually the runtime to run the containers. And so, what what's its purpose? What, why did why does Docker Shim exist? And and wh- and how have they managed to get rid of it? So, s- small correction: Docker Shim is not really runtime to run containers. Docker Shim is a translator from um, 
from API from Kubernetes from API calls in Kubernetes to Docker because Kubernetes Kubernetes initially started with a lot of hard-coded uh, uh, instructions how to deal with containers based on Docker. Over time, it evolved, and uh, it is for a while now. Uh, Docker, uh, sorry, Kubernetes assumes that there is a runtime uh, container runtime, whichever it is, doesn't care, and that container write, runtime speaks some standard interface, which everybody agreed on. And the only really, maybe not the only, but one of the few, if not the only container runtime that doesn't speak that interface is Docker. So they have, they converted their hard-coded Docker instructions into Docker shim, which is that translator between the standard interfaces and the invocations of that interface in Kubernetes. So it's a, it's a bridge between um, standard interface and uh, and it's Docker. like a wrapper, basically. It's, yes. it's a wrapper so that it can speak the standard protocols of, of Kubernetes. Exactly. And the main reason for deprecation is basically there is no good reason why Kubernetes community would maintain that wrapper, right? If everybody agreed that there is this interface uh, with a cryo or container D or whichever other container runtime, it speaks that interface, good story, right? And uh, there is no good reason to maintain it anymore. On top of all that, even without that uh, deprecation of Docker shim, there was never a really good reason to use Docker as your container runtime in the first place, because Docker packs a lot of things. And, and we all like those things because they're very helpful today, uh, let's say on laptop, but it packs uh, code that uh, uh, mounts your volumes into, into your containers, that deals with networking, there is a container scheduler similar to Kubernetes called Docker Swarm and so on and so forth. So it has a lot of things. But if most of those, a lot, what they call a lot of things, are implemented on Kubernetes level today, then mm. you're basically having something that you don't need. And the it's always... There. Exactly. Mm. And so and so we've got rid of a lot of stuff that we actually didn't weren't using, didn't need. So a lot of bloat has actually gone. Exactly, exactly. A lot of unnecessary things. And as a matter of fact, if you use container D, which is probably the most commonly used container runtime these days, and on the other hand, if you use Docker, you're also using container D. Doc container D is part of Docker. It basically, Docker company moved part of Docker, let's say, the part that is in charge of running containers and not much more, it moved it into a separate project. And then when they build Docker itself, mm -hmm. they include ContainerD. Mm -hmm. So if it wasn't already clear, Docker itself is not going. In terms of containerizing applications and, and Dockerizing applications and running them on a Kubernetes cluster, that's not going. What's going is Docker shim, the runtime for the, for the Docker containers. Yes. So at least officially, from Kubernetes perspective, Docker shim is going. Kubernetes community never said Docker is going away. Docker shim is going away. But the result of uh, that translator going away from, from Kubernetes clusters, it indirectly means that Docker is also going away. Unless you switch into you, if unless you continue using Docker shim, which these day, which these days will be maintained by Mirantis, which is a company that bought uh, uh, 
Docker, basically doc, part of Docker employees in their, some of their IP. So you can theoretically continue using Docker because you can continue using Docker Shim, but that would be postponing because I doubt that Mirantis will really maintain Docker Shim for a long time. It's more a business, short-term business decision. So yes, Docker is not going away, but you will be forced to remove Docker from Kubernetes clusters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can freely continue using it on your laptops, which is a separate story. Okay, so it actually, I mean, it sounds dramatic when Kubernetes announced that they were removing Docker Shim, but in actual reality, it's probably not such a big impact unless, you, as you say, think people were doing things which they shouldn't have been doing with the uh, the containers anyway. Um, yes. Is, is there any impact at all, do you think, on decisions like this on the Do- uh, Docker community and the Docker ecosystem? Uh, Docker as a company, I think, switched gears and moved away from the idea that they will provide you with a container orchestrator like what was Docker Swarm, and I mean, still is Docker Swarm, and a few other things. And I think that they're now focusing very much on how would they call it? Maybe developer experience. Uh, they're, they're very much focused on tooling for, for developers, mm-hmm. which was in a way original intention from Docker in the first place. Uh, so they are they're very committed to what you need as a developer on your laptop mm-hmm. and not that much uh, uh, what you need as a, as, a, as a developer or anybody else elsewhere, like in your cluster. Yeah. And they're going a bit beyond that and uh, entering a lot into crossing the gap between uh, a developer and a cloud provider. So you can use, for example, Docker these days to deploy things to Azure container instances. You can use Docker to deploy to uh, ECS and a few others, uh, security scanning with Sneak. So they're either what is happening on your laptop, actually mostly what is happening on your laptop, plus some bursts into how to help developers deploy to development environments, because not many, not many people, if anybody is going to use those integrations like Azure Container Instances for production, but it might be useful as uh, during the development process, I guess. Got it. If you don't mind, we're going to switch gears a little bit uh, and start to, uh, to talk about GitOps. Um, so I know you've written quite a bit of Git about GitOps uh, on your uh, blog and podcast. Um, there's a bit of confusion in terms of the distinction between GitOps and infrastructure as code. There seem to be some relationships there. One is a subset of the other. One does more than the other. Can you tell us what all the hype about is about GitOps and, and what relationship it has to infrastructure as code? I tend to define GitOps maybe slightly differently than, than many. To me, it's, it's, it's not really a new idea. It is a, essentially, GitOps is all about making sure that Git is your source of truth, at least for the desired state, for what for our intentions, not necessarily for what something is, but what we want something to be. And if you go back, I don't know, like 30 years, uh, you would still say, hey, the code is in Git. I mean, 30 years ago, you wouldn't say Git, you would say SVN or CVS or, or whatever we were using at that time. But is that enforcement of the idea that, hey, if you write code, code needs to be in Git because that's the only version control system we have today. And by the way, since all of us are engineers, we all write code. uh, Therefore, 
uh, Git is the, the real source of truth because if everything is code and code is in Git, then that's where things reside. And it's mostly to avoid things like, hey, I wrote some, let's say you, you're, you mentioned the infrastructure as code. Uh, to avoid those situations where you write some Terraform files or Ansible something or whatever you're doing, and then you start executing it from your laptop without pushing it to Git first. And it is extremely important that you do always, always store something in Git before changing the state of something for a simple reason, because unless you're a one-man company, that enforcement of keeping everything in version control means that you are working in, in a team in a way, right? That's how we collaborate with each other. I know what you did because I can, I can check the changes you made to your code. And I'm doing that, valid, not validation, but uh, exploration of what you did through, through Git. So this is what I was saying. Like this all sounds very much like infrastructure as code. And we've pretty much, as you say, always stored um, infrastructure as code in some sort of code repository like, like um, your Git repository. But as I understand it, uh, GitOps, it goes beyond that. And so instead of your, the state of your infrastructure being just only stored in, in uh, your Git repository, there, it's actually a two-way communication which with your infrastructure reporting back to your Git repository uh, advising if your state is the same. Am I, am I correct? Yes. Now, yes and no. In a way, I think that what we're seeing lately that, you know, GitOps is becoming very popular and then uh, different software vendors, you know, everybody's trying to jump into that wave to get some benefits. And then we are all redefining what it is depending on what our software does. And there, there, there is always that such a conflict going with everything new. Uh, and according to some points of view, you would say, hey, GitOps means that uh, you have um, some kind of processes that will uh, detect drifts automatically and say, hey, your infrastructure or your application or whatever it is happened to be uh, start being different five seconds ago from what is defining it. Let me correct that, which is amazing thing. I think that everybody should implement that. I don't necessarily see it as a requirement. If you would be uh, pushing, if you would be applying those changes uh, by receiving notifications from Git instead of you detecting changes in Git, uh, and you would not allow anybody to do manual changes in your infrastructure, you would still get to a similar place. But it is definitely beneficial, I would say, rather than a rule uh, to have that, that type of processes that are monitoring your Git repository all the time and trying to figure out what changed. Did, did anybody, anything change? And we, when I think about it, if, if you remember the days, that wasn't so long ago, right? When, when we were all using Chef and, or Puppet for infrastructure, mm. they had those things basically, which were removed uh, later on with, with Ansible and Terraform. There was a server where that would be receiving your your change is stored in a code repository and continuously monitor for, the, for those drifts. So it's not necessarily something new. It's not necessarily something um, that, that has to happen. Uh, the most important thing, of course, is that Git is the source of truth, but it is definitely very beneficial, let's say. Okay. So, so what are the current trends in infrastructure as code? Uh, you know, I, I, we, you mentioned a couple like Chef and Puppet and how we've evolved into Ansible and 
And then we had the proprietary formats uh, of the public cloud providers, uh, most uh, famously cloud formation templates for AWS. And uh, Terraform seems to be the big player in the space now. Um, DevOps moving away from those proprietary definitions of the uh, like cloud formation templates, templates which only work with AWS, moving to sort of more cloud agnostic solutions like Terraform? Yeah, I, I think that that's, that's almost, almost certain, let's say. If you look at what uh, Google is, I don't think that Google even has a proprietary. Uh, if they do, nobody's using it and nobody <laughs> knows about it, right? Uh, Azure, Azure basically, basically gave up on the proprietary and is more focusing on how that proprietary can be invoked from other tools than something else. From a, from a certain point of view, you could say that AWS with CloudFormation is the only one that is still pushing somehow proprietary infrastructure as code. But, but even that wouldn't be really true. Because if you go and, for example, check the examples in AWS, you know, quick start tutorials, how to create, let's say, EKS cluster. And I'm now talking about official documentation, not random blogs. You will see that even AWS is, is putting as a first option EKS cuttle, which is, which is yet another tool to do configuration as code, focused only on EKS, true, but um, not really proprietary, not really AWS. It wasn't even written by AWS folks. So even AWS, which is probably the strongest proponent of their own tools, is, is shifting away to, to others. Hmm. And how agnostic is it realistically? So when you're writing a Terraform template uh, for your infrastructure at AWS, how agnostic is it? Can, can I just flick a switch and go to, to Google? No. Or is it? No. It's not really agnostic. It's not agnostic at all. Hmm. We can potentially talk about uh, application layer being agnostic through Kubernetes. That, that's that's definitely a thing, even though there are differences there are small between providers, but infrastructure as code is anything but agnostic. Mm -hmm. The only thing that we have is, hey, you can use this tool to define your infrastructure no matter where it is. Let's say Terraform or Ansible or what's not. But the definition, and, and we can say, hey, you will use the same format to define that something no matter where it is. In, in case of Terraform, that would be HCL, right? Uh, and Ansible would be YAML and what's not. But the contents of what you're defining is, go is going to be completely different. You will not be able to share a single line of your infrastructure with, if, if moving from AWS to Azure or vice versa, except mm -hmm. maybe name equals equals something. That, that might be the same. That's, that's it. That's where it stops. So it's not agnostic at all. It's rather that um, those two those tools can handle infrastructure in different variations or permutations, and then you have one tool, but not agnostic definition, no. Because there are some projects where they're trying to abstract the APIs of AWS and Google and Azure to, so that you have a single interface to provision a compute instance, for example, and storage and the like, right? So I guess through a, an abstracted API, you could potentially sort of create some sort of agnostic interface. It could, but it's very, it would require a lot of work, I think. Like you're right about infrastructure, for example, and we can see that 
uh, S3 basically essentially became uh, a standard for for certain type of uh, storage and you you will find the ability to create S3 buckets outside of AWS and that is kind of becoming agnostic or a type of standard and if I exclude now Kubernetes as, as an option where uh, you you create storage or external load balancing in exactly the same way, no matter where it's running. Uh, apart from those two, two, maybe a few more examples, it's still very much proprietary because whichever tool you use, it will need to invoke API of that provider, which is very, very different. Yeah, I was more talking about uh, like Apache LibCloud, a project to abstract the APIs of Azure and AWS so that you can provision a, a an instance and, and 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 not really care under the covers as to uh, you know what where and where how that instance is being provisioned through a single yeah way. I haven't used the, I'm going to write it down on my to do list I haven't okay. used what did you say Apache Apache LibCloud it's been around for a while I, I don't see a lot of traction behind it. There's a couple of projects there to try and uh, unify the APIs of the ma major public uh, cloud providers. Um, you know, I I think it would be possible if 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 such a tool and I really don't know Apache uh, itself, so I cannot comment on that one. But if such a tool would focus on a couple of things like storage, smaller potentially, hmm. I can see it working. But as soon as we go beyond common denominators. There, there would be a lot of problems. Let's say that if your task would be to create um, a Kubernetes cluster, right? And you would like to standardize that. Like uh, in AWS, you need to create like 10 or more different services. In Google Cloud, it's a single service. Now, if you would like to unify that in a single API, I, I could not even comprehend how that would be possible, right? How would you, you without excluding capabilities of one uh, and reducing it to a bare minimum kind of, you can specify a name only and, and maybe the number of nodes. Even right. if you look at the sizes, let's say that you want to create a unified API to create VMs and that's much simpler now than Kubernetes. How will you handle sizes? Sizes are completely different in every provider. That's right. You'd need to standardize across uh, instance types. And, and of course there is, there's, you have to create broad groups of small, medium, and large, and all the like. So there's lots and lots of challenges associated with it. Uh, look, Terraform seems to be the major player in this infrastructure as code, but there are plenty of alternatives. You've mentioned a couple already, and we have others as well, like Lumi and more recently Crossplane. What are the difference between these alternatives, and, and, and why would you choose one over the other? So the short description between the... On one hand, we have... Infrastructure is code that is declarative. That would be Terraform, uh, Ansible in the past, and uh, Crossplane that you just mentioned. Uh, and on the other hand, we have Pulumi, which takes a different approach, uh, meaning uh, you can use your favorite programming language as long as it is supported by Pulumi uh, to co write code, basically, uh, as, as your infrastructure. So that would be one distinction and one uh, different paths that they're taking. And then we have uh, among declarative, basically the major player is, is without a doubt, Terraform maybe Ansible being the second uh, behind that, mostly because of the past 
uh, weight that it had than anything else. And uh, now recently, when I say recently, maybe a year ago, how I think that year ago was when the first lines were written. Uh, we have crossplane. I mean, of course, we have many others, so don't get offended uh, if you if, <laughs> if you listening is behind one of them. But to me, crossplane is interesting because it doesn't give me that agnosticism that we were talking about. I, I, I cannot really use the same definition, just flip a switch from one provider to another. But it gives me the ability to manage my infrastructure through Kubernetes API. And the benefit of all that is that to begin with, I have one API to manage everything I have. And I'm, of course, now I'm referring to people who are mostly focused on Kubernetes, even though infrastructure can be anything. Uh, and I can say, hey, I use kubectl basically solves all my needs. I can do kubectl, deploy my application, kubectl, create my cluster, kubectl, give me the storage or whatever my task is. And that, that helps a lot, potentially helps a lot because we ultimately want to move probably many of us wants to move towards shift left and move towards, uh, hey, um, uh, we have those self-sufficient teams that can do everything and having a single tool, single interface, sorry, not tool, a uh, single interface to do something, uh, actually to do everything is, is potentially very beneficial. Uh, and then we have, on top of that, we have all the things that Kubernetes gives us, ecosystem, that is probably the biggest one right now, uh, From and then plugging yet another tool, like in this case, infrastructure as code into that ecosystem is potentially very good. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, Kubernetes API is mature and, and uh, extensive, right? So cross-plane is leveraging that API, meaning that no matter where your Kubernetes cluster is deployed, it's going to work because it's just using the Kubernetes API. Am I right? Yes, it will work. Uh, you, you could potentially switch your, uh, move your Kubernetes, let's say from Kubernetes cluster with cross-plane running there from AWS to Azure and cross and everything will still work. Mm -hmm. But that still poses the problem from before. Yes, yes, if you have everything in AWS and you move your cluster to, uh, where crossplane is running to Azure, crossplane will work, but it will still continue creating infrastructure in AWS, right? Because even with crossplane, you still need to rewrite everything if you would like to switch also what it does. I mean, not what it does, but does if, if you wanted to do the same thing, but somewhere else. Yeah, so the underlying networking and infrastructure and all the, all the base setup, it, it still requires... Uh, cloud provider specific code. Yes, except, and there is actually exception, if what you need for infrastructure are the things that Kubernetes itself needs, right? Not the things outside. So you might need to create, a, let's say, a database service somewhere that counts as infrastructure, and that's going to be very different. Now, if you need a load balancer, if you need storage, if you need things that are today needed for your applications running inside Kubernetes, then that is already standardized. And for that, you don't even need Terraform or Crossplane or what's or not, because you just create a service that is of type load balancer, and it will figure out how to create a load balancer here or there, wherever that something is. Same mm -hmm. thing for storage. You might need to tweak a bit 
the drivers that are used for the storage, but from the end user perspective who says, hey, I want, uh, I want a block storage that has four gigs of uh, space, that, that is going to work the same everywhere. Uh, and that doesn't even require cross-plane or Terraform or what's or not. Interesting. Look, as uh, a DevOps expert, if you, if you were to create a wish list of uh, what you would like to see occur in the industry and as you're seeing it evolve, is there, tools, is there tooling you would like to see improved? Is there uh, these description languages for building infrastructure as code? What is it you would, as a DevOps engineer would like to see evolve? Yeah, uh, I, I don't like being, I'm not a DevOps engineer. I don't think that such a thing exists, which we can discuss later. But okay. uh, what I think we need the most right now is uh, a layer on top of Kubernetes, something that will simplify it. Because if, if you go back in time, like at the, at the beginning of Docker, what Docker, the reason why Docker became so popular is that they created something that is extremely user-friendly and very, very easy for almost everybody to learn in almost no time, All right? Uh, hey, this is how create containers, few hours of figuring out and you're an expert, right? Uh, Docker's form, here is how we schedule containers across the whole cluster, very easy, and so on and so forth. I think that that whole idea died over time because making something easy that will satisfy 80% of people, but will not satisfy those 20% that actually matter for those that type of work, like sysadmins and what's or not, was bound to fail. Then we got Kubernetes, which satisfy, satisfies those 20%, right? It gives us all the power in the world. It allows us to do things that we could never imagine doing, but it failed to make it simple. Basically, we can think of Kubernetes as a canceling shift left movement that started a while ago, right? It, it cannot go left anymore because it's too complicated. Now what we need now, but with Kubernetes, we got that solid base. Hey, everything is possible. It is designed to be extensible, but result of extensibility is complexity. Now we need that additional layer uh, that will make Kubernetes transparent. I, I, I would like to move like five years forward in time mm. uh, and make a prediction. And my guess would be that five years, many people will not even know that they're running Kubernetes. It will, it will become an implementation detail. Like, hey, uh, if you use Linux today, you don't compile um, a kernel. Uh, mm -hmm. If when you write code, you don't deal with memory and, and uh, CPU anymore. That just happens. Those are all transparent implementation details that are that we don't care about. And I mm -hmm. think that I hope that we will get into that place with Kubernetes. And if I would have one thing on a wish list that I would wish companies to work on, and I think that some are already doing that, that's that simplification. The best example to, of, uh, of that to me would be Google Cloud Run. Mm -hmm. Like that's, hey, here's my container, run it. And it will scale it to zero if nobody's using it. It is basically serverless implementation of containers. It runs Kubernetes in the background, but you would probably need to spend like at least half an hour, hour reading the documentation before you come to the word Kubernetes. Yes, they're not right. hiding it from you. So they're, they're not saying this is not Kubernetes. We are trying to trick you, stuff like that. It is Kubernetes. They are acknowledging it, but it's almost irrelevant for you as a user 
that there mm. is Kubernetes over there. Yeah, man, good stuff. Victor, I can't believe that we've already been talking uh, for our, a lot of time for this podcast. It's gone really quickly. How can the audience uh, uh, keep up to date with uh, what you're writing and talking about? Uh, so it's V-F-A-R-C-I-C. That's my nick almost everywhere. So if you go to GitHub, if you go to Twitter, if you go to uh, almost everywhere else, you will find me under that nick. Excellent. That's easy. Victor, thanks for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. All right. That's a wrap for this round of cocktails. To our listeners, what did you think of this podcast episode? Let us know in the comment section from the podcast platform you're listening to. Also, please visit our website at www.torocloud.com for a transcript of this episode, as well as our blogs and our products. We're also on social media, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Talk to us there because we listen. Just look for Toro Cloud. Again, thank you very much for listening to us today. On behalf of the entire team here at Toro Cloud, this has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers. <laughs>